Welcome to the Growth Enablement Madness Podcast, and I'm Jim Ward, your host, CEO of BrainCell, the growth enablement company. I'm absolutely mad about helping businesses grow and scale. And in this podcast, my team and I get a chance to talk shop with industry thought leaders about a variety of growth enablement strategies, stories, and technology trends. I'm happy that you're here, so let's get the growth conversation started. Welcome, everybody. This is Jim Ward. I'm CEO of BrainCell. We're a growth enablement company. And here's another podcast. Glad you're listening wherever you are. Remember, you can find this podcast wherever podcasts are found. I don't know where they're found. I think they're found in Apple and Google's and the, and the sna- literally, literally everywhere. In the snap, snap face. Yeah. Well, except the except face. Okay. And so uh, <laughs> we have a tremendous fun guest with us today. Before I introduce that person, uh, let me introduce my sidekicks, uh, Brian Anderson, who's our content manager and produces the uh, podcast. Hey, Brian. Hey, Jim. Uh, you all right today? You How's right? it going? This is like my third Diet Coke, so I'm I'm, I'm pretty yeah. good. Okay. I'm going good right. today. It looks like I have a little better tan than you. But anyways, that's okay. It's, I should. Yeah. Uh, I didn't get to the tanning booth today. I, I tried, yes, but it, tried. Wasn't, it wasn't I tried that easy. I tried the spray tanning booth down in the conference room. And also with us is my trusty sidekick, Allie Lippman, who is an account executive on our CX side. What is CX anyways, Allie? Oh, man, I wish I had a funny answer, but I'm okay. just going to give you the real answer, which is that it's yeah. a customer right. experience. And so uh, so software that you are involved with. And by the way, everybody out there in um, listening land, uh, Allie has uh, moved up from being a senior customer success manager to an account executive. So congratulations, Allie. Congrats Thanks, to Jim. you. Thanks. Well deserved. Yeah, I'm having so much fun. But yeah, I really consider customer experience to be everything that touches your end customer. So whether that's your sales process, marketing process, customer service, et cetera, et cetera, all of the different layering technologies that that support those processes, that's all part of the customer experience. God, I'm glad you're with us because I, I would have no idea without you. Thank you. All right. So uh, let me introduce our guest today. Our guest is CEO of Sugar CRM. His name is Craig Charlton. Welcome, Craig. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me. Welcome, Craig. Thank you. I know this is going to be a fun podcast because you're a fun guy. I didn't mean <laughs> that as a mushroom. I meant that as a fun guy, G-U-I. All right, so, but thanks for joining us. And uh, we're going to just get into some of the questions around uh, yourself and sugar and anything you want to talk about. But let, let me start with, I always tell uh, folks, you know, we're a growth enablement company. I think we've nearly coined the phrase, if you look at SEO, we're, we're there. So if you want to search it, we, you should find us all over the place. What does growth enablement mean to you, Craig? Simply having a growth mindset within the business and ensuring alignment across direct and indirect teams. So everyone puts growth as their top priority, essentially. So for me, it it means being customer, market, and sales focused and finding ways to remove roadblocks to growth and and other impediments to growth. That to me is what growth enablement is all about. Yeah. And, you know, for us, it's about applying technologies as well right? To help companies grow and scale, understanding their people and process first, but applying those technologies to help them truly grow and scale. It's perfect for you to be here today because I think you've got a lot to talk about in that arena. So let's talk about Sugar's, let's start with Sugar's recent branding and positioning change. I've been with Sugar as a partner for over a decade. And so I've seen some of the changes. And could you tell me a little bit about your perspective on letting the platform do the work and, and the impact on the product's growth? Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Jim, look, CRM is, for anyone who's been involved and, and been a CRM user, which probably encompasses most of the world, the whole CRM challenge has consistently been user adoption. 
And the issue, in my mind, stems from why CRM was initially created and the audience it was created for, which was essentially management. And it was created to meet the needs of management without really a lot of regard for the people who are actually doing the work and the people who had to interface with the platform and spend tons and tons of time working away on the platform and having a an imbalance between the effort that was required to keep the system fed and, and the benefit that you actually got from the system. So that's something which has pervaded CRM for a long, long time. And, and you look at lots of CRM implementations, there's a reputation for over-promising and under-delivering, and that's not a good place to be. And you would have seen our research findings in the last 12 months where we we surveyed a lot of CRM users, which weren't sugar users, but we did a global survey. And some of the statistics were, you know, 52% of sales leaders said that their CRM was costing them revenue. That's the opposite of what CRM exists for, right? So getting that sort of feedback is really worrying. And the root cause of CRM failures is fundamentally because people don't really want to use the system because of the genesis and how they were created. So many CRMs just suck your budget and your motivation and they require constant care and attention. And for too long, companies have been stuck with these, I'll call them high-maintenance CRMs that require way too much manual effort to be useful or alternatively deliver too little functionality to actually provide a benefit. And that's not what tech's meant to be. Tech is meant to make your life easier. It, it should work for you and, and not the other way around. So we've been looking at this and, and you look at the way that you hand feed all of this data into the platform and then it still expects you to do to identify cross-selling opportunities and expects a user to identify at-risk accounts, even though they've put all of this information into the system. You know, it requires marketing teams to still manually score leads and and run campaigns and clean up after themselves and has your service reps manually routing cases rather than doing what they should be doing, which is, which is talking to the customer. So the list goes on and, and our view is that sugar is different. Our mission is to let the platform do the work, let the technology do what technology should be doing. So we've chosen to, to build software that helps drive experiences and experiences that are much more predictable and and far more performant and, and easier to manage for, for sales professionals and marketing professionals and service professionals. So this really has become our, our North Star as a business. We look at this whenever we're doing any sorts of evaluation of what we're going to be doing from a product investment perspective. We want the machines, obviously, with AI and prediction capabilities. We want to be delivering actionable insights and guidance to help humans do what they do best, which is which is build relationships. So we're always looking for ways that we can increase productivity to rebalance that benefit versus effort, enhancing the UI and the UX and removing the number of clicks or taking clicks out of the way altogether. You know, it's the whole concept of, of data entry as a last resort. And the platform has to provide far more benefit than the effort required to feed it. And that's how tech's meant to be. And that's that's what let the platform do the work means for me. It's funny how even in today's like modern tech boom, like even from the start of like CRM at the beginning, there's always been this ongoing issue with like, whether it be just onboarding users or even like just investing in a platform and not 
taking full advantage of that investment and only using like your CRM as your batch and blast email <laughs> piece versus anything else. And it's crazy how there's still so many folks out there that aren't making the most of one of the biggest investments that their company has to have. It's pretty mind boggling. The tech's too hard and it shouldn't be too hard. I mean, everything should be automated where it can be automated and people should be guided in terms of what they should be doing as opposed to just operating based on gut feel. So, you know, for, particularly sales professionals, if you provide a, a platform that enables them to be a lot more successful and a lot more productive, they're going to embrace that platform. You do the opposite and they're just going to refuse to use it. That's the reality. So that brings me to a question for you. So uh, maybe you can give us maybe a user story or some examples about what Sugar's platform is doing to help folks make decisions like that. What have you done? I know you've made some acquisitions and things like that. Tell us a little bit about what Sugar's doing to enhance that user experience. Well, we've done a number of acquisitions to hopefully make the lives of our customers far better. And one of them that really excites me, which was 12 months ago now, was the acquisition of Node, which is this predictive capability. So having tech which has huge amounts of data ingested and then leaving it up to the gut feel of individuals to make all of the decisions, that just doesn't make any sense in this day and age. So we purchased this company. It's an amazing predictive insights engine, and we've incorporated that into the core application. And so now we're, as well as gut feel, I don't think it's one or the other, but providing AI-based predictions around all manner of things from which leads should be qualified to the likelihood of a, a sales opportunity being one to, you know, forecast capabilities to sentiment analysis, you know, all manner of different use cases that we've already managed to deliver in our core application. So guiding customers in terms of what they should be focusing on and, and what they shouldn't be focusing on. I think that's an incredibly powerful use of technology. And because we made it available in the core application, you just turn it on. It's not like a science experiment, as you see with lots of our peers, where it's potential success and potential failure. And regardless of which one, it, it costs you a fortune to get there. So I'm really excited about that. For me, that's a one of the prime examples of technology doing what it's meant to do. You know, you know, I see a lot of our clients, uh, a lot of folks who are prospective clients really aren't using, for example, pipeline enough to really manage their sales as they go forward to make sure they're going to hit their budgets or their plans. And one of the things I think we could talk about in Sugar is, uh, don't you have the predictive that does tell a little bit about which one is like, which deal is more likely to close than another? We do, we do, yeah. And I think I saw it was color-coded as well, and it gave you a good sense of where to spend your time. Could you, because I thought, you know... I, I love it. I use it every day, Jim. <laughs> I've been doing what wasn't CRM when I started. It was uh, called contact management. Contact management, yes. And then, then it got sexy and it was Salesforce automation and then it became CRM and now it's, you know, whatever, it's evolving further. So I go way back and to see these changes is, uh, is significant. So maybe just tell us a little bit about that predictive and pipeline uh, capability. Yeah, so as a salesperson, knowing what to really focus on is important and also knowing what not to focus on. I mean, if we could wind back time and take out all of the opportunities which really had a low percentage chance of success so that we could put more effort into those that had a higher percentage chance of success, we would all do that because we would be far more successful individuals and obviously collectively as companies. So we've got an engine which is working behind the scenes, constantly learning as well. So it's constantly getting better. 
and it's you know looking at you know a treasure trove of internal and external uh, data and picking which of the different opportunities on a scale have the greatest potential to move from marketing qualified to sales qualified and then from sales qualified to actually be one. And you know the whole lot of attributes around this is a there's a, a lot of very complex science, but having that crystal ball is in my mind incredibly valuable both at a, an individual sales contributor level, but obviously also at a, at a management executive and company level. Yeah, very effective. And of course, you also have the platform. You move to a platform concept. Can you just talk to that a bit? What is the platform? So the platform is binding marketing, sales, and service professionals together on, on essentially one platform. So enables us to do all sorts of things in terms of breaking the barriers down between functions. So if you think 10 or 15 years ago, marketing and sales were quite discrete functions. And, and I saw quite often a lot of finger pointing between the organizations. Breaking down those barriers, having a seamless, frictionless customer experience from end to end is absolutely paramount. And you can't do that if I've got a separate cloud for this and a separate cloud for that and a separate cloud for this. You've got all these lines of demarcation and friction on handoffs between different parts of the organization. You know, our belief is the customer journey should be absolutely seamless from that pointy end of the business through to the you know the care and loving of the customer at the uh, once they've signed up. So in doing that, you know, in, in having this one single platform enables us to be constantly looking at what are the roadblocks, where's the busy work, what are the things that we can eliminate as a business, and you know break down those barriers. Each of those functional areas, <laughs> I did it again, areas, uh, it's the, you know, that's the one thing about the Australian accent and the Boston accent. Either we don't say our R's or we do say them where they don't go. Is that, do you agree with that? I'm going to get into a discussion well, around, for, well, around water versus water. Water. So I'm not going to have that discussion. <laughs> water. <laughs> which one is right, right. which one is right, though. All right, let's move on then. Um, I'm, I'm working on my, my, my Australian accent. Um, later on, ask me for what my other, my other um, what do you call it when you you copy somebody else's voice? Um, Imitations? Impressions. 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 Okay. Yeah. That's a sales technique, by the way, get the other person to say it. So that platform, is it a, the most important part of each functional area is to be able to get the data because that can be driving predictive concepts for a company to make decisions against. Is is your data platform a common data platform? Does it allow for that kind of data uh, from each of those functional areas? It does. And one of the other bits of research that when we researched, did the global um, survey of uh, sales professionals, one of the other areas that came up was the, the number that believe there is a lack of visibility across the silos in the business. And that's very disempowering as, as a business. What we actually have is we have an underlying CXP which collects data across all of the different functions within the business. And we use that to drive a whole lot of things. We use that to actually drive our AI engine as well. So it's a time-based data platform that has every single interaction that you've ever experienced. And so, you know, the ability to, to rewind and wind forward a customer experience, regardless of which touch point it was, whether it was marketing, sales or, or service or voice of the customer or any of those other elements. So it's really breaking down the barriers, Jim. So you're saying that I can actually take a, a sliver of time from last year compared to a sliver of time this year? Is that, yeah, not everybody does that. That's that's unique. So I was, I was talking to a PE firm and we were showing them just our velocity view of the funnel. And the private equity firm, who I won't name, said, 
they spent $500,000 just getting that view for one of their portfolio companies. And for sugar, it comes straight out of the box. I mean, it's just leveraging our CXP. Yeah, it's a great differentiator in the marketplace. All right, so you and I met, gosh, as the time flown, I, we flew out to Colorado to meet you, Teresa and I, what was that, two years ago? Three years ago? I'll have to check my diary. But, <laughs> but it I, was, yeah. yeah, so it was when you... <laughs> when it, Best day of your life, right? <laughs> your diary. We're going Jackpot. all silent. It goes silent on that question. Um, <laughs> So um, uh, perhaps it was over two years ago now. And so that was when you became CEO of Sugar, as I uh, was the reason for coming out and meeting and talking. And so what have you seen over those few years? Because technology evolves so quickly. And with the evolution of the things that have happened in the, in the SaaS software business, has it impacted you, your company, your leadership decisions since that time? How are things changed over the two or three years since we've met? Yeah, look, I, I think the glaring elephant in the room is we've had a one in 100 year pandemic called COVID. It's transformed every industry in some way or another, some of them dramatically and some less so. And most of them, unfortunately, have been adversely affected and, and, and some have had a bit of a tailwind from, from COVID. But I think that the biggest difference for SaaS companies has been the move to remote and virtual business models. So many were at least partially remote. I know we were. But, you know, moving to 100% remote business model, in some ways it's a bit of a leveler, right? Because it doesn't matter how big or small you are, you're all interacting with the customer on the, on the same basis now, which is, you know, predominantly virtual. So it's a bit more of a level playing field. You know, it's, it's really changed the, particularly the sales dynamic. Significantly, you know, as salespeople haven't been able to actually interact with prospects face-to-face. And so... It's a lot more difficult actively listening when you're on a Zoom call. It's it's very difficult to pick up on emotions and body language. So I think that's really transformed the sales interaction. I think on the service side, you know, things have moved far more to like a self-service type model and, and there's been dramatic change in in uh, in the marketing function as well. But for me, in terms of the of the CEO role, it was it was Getting hit by COVID, one of the first times, I mean, it's happened a few times, where we really did some serious war room planning and we ran scenarios from original budget through to like doomsday type scenarios and and then we tracked our progress against those and were completely transparent with the entire company in terms of where we were were tracking on, uh, on the different scenarios. And so we were able to keep the team informed of our progress, albeit we couldn't meet physically and... And I was particularly proud of the fact that as soon as we'd finished that war room planning, I could I made a commitment to the entire team that none of those models, even the doomsday model, predicated a COVID-related workforce reduction. And so being able to commit that to the business, many of our competitors took the opportunity to clean house. I thought that was an, an awful way to respond to the crisis when they really didn't need to. And so when people had, you know, this dark cloud around lots of aspects of their life to be able to um, make them confident that at least their job was safe was something that, um, yeah, as I said, you know, we were very proud of. So you you didn't have any workforce reduction during uh, COVID at all, as I recall. I saw nothing. That's correct. Effect. In fact, um, we grew and, and kept acquiring companies. Yeah so. yeah, so did we. We did the same. So we're aligned there. And are you having a folks return? I'm just curious. Are you are you having folks return to the office? Is there any policies? Where do you? We're going through this decision making process now, and probably going to go to a flex schedule as opposed to requiring everybody to come back. We, we're certainly not requiring anyone to come back. 
We've done uh, multiple check-ins with the team over the time. And early days, we had, I think, 30% saying that they wanted to be back in the office. And so as soon as we could make the office available, we did. And basically, no one came back. So, you know, albeit people were telling us they wanted to come back, there was a real hesitancy. So um, I think we've actually been really productive as a business uh, remotely. I, as I said to my wife, I went from working at home to living at work. <laughs> And I'm, I'm here living at work at the moment. So I occasionally go into the office, but we're evaluating what our needs are going to be going forward in terms of actual facilities. Office and, space, right? Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't want to be in commercial property at this particular point. No, nope, neither would I. No, no, no. no. <laughs> we're maintaining our office space, Craig, but we have cost-effective office space here that'll give folks the option. But I know some of your, some of your offices are quite expensive. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, so uh, Ali, did you you had a question? I think that I saw your eyebrows go up, which is the body language I'm detecting over Zoom. Well, I do have some questions for you, Craig. Uh, I want to talk. So I'm a, as you know, I'm a sugar certified sales specialist, and so I'm very familiar with sugar's differentiators of a daily user, and I love sugar. I want to talk just based on our conversations about COVID, kind of about our our last differentiator, which is customers for life, both from a channel perspective, like how you see partners like BrainCell supporting customers for life, but also from a COVID perspective, how did you support sugar customers during times where their businesses may have been impacted? Yeah, well, look, for those of you who don't know sugar too well, we, we, have, a, we have both an on-premise version as well as a cloud version. You know, COVID sort of really highlighted how much easier it is to live as a pure SaaS customer versus an on-premise customer. And, and there's a whole variety of reasons why our customers are on-premise and we, we're 100% supportive of that. But we decided to make the transition available from on-premise to in the cloud for those customers that wanted that as an option. And we made that essentially free. And, and whereas previously there was a, a charge associated, we took the opportunity when people were you know, sitting at home and potentially not as productive as they were previously, we made available, you know, pretty much all of our education content, which previously used to be a pay-as-you-go, we made that available for free. So people could up their skills and get themselves really ready to thrive as we, uh, you know, came out of the tail end of COVID. We had lots of requests for concessions and where they were legitimate, we stepped in and really helped our customers. We obviously wanted one part of customers for life is they have to be in business, right? So we want to generate customers for life. So we, you know, we stepped up and helped out with payment plans and helped out with concessions and helped out with, you know, customers who needed to reestablish what their footprint was with sugar. So, you know, there were lots of areas. We obviously had to look after our financial well-being as well, because if we didn't do that, then, then uh, that wouldn't be good for anyone. But yeah, there were a ton of different concessions that we took in order to uh, make sure our customers were in the best possible shape. Our partners, once again, you know, you guys are an extension of what we do. And, and I know there were lots of initiatives at a partner level to ease that transition for the customers. Yeah. It's always good to get another CEO on a podcast and it also gives the audience a chance to get a little to know about you as well, because it isn't just an entity or a company. It's about humans who are part of the company. And so I'm often curious about your perspectives on growth. I know you've got big growth goals in mind. How do you approach leadership with big growth goals? Do you have a specific strategic approach to this? Can you tell me a little about that? Well, not, not really. I mean, you, you obviously have to set priorities and make it clear that growth is 
a priority for the business. And, you know, obviously in any business, you're either growing or you're dying is one of the harsh realities. So growing is important. You know, for me as a CEO, I've seen, I've worked for a lot of different CEOs. I've seen different styles. I've seen many different styles. I've seen styles that that work well and, and others that in my mind don't work well. You know, for me, the priorities as a CEO, number one is get the right people on the bus. Even before you figure out where the bus is going, you've got to have the right team. And, you know, and that means sometimes taking out cultural terrorists within the business who undermine the business at every opportunity. So getting the, the right people on the bus and then empowering those people. And for me, one of the most empowering things is we, we have what we call a yes if mentality. Oh, I know that very well. And it's something that, you know, I've carried with me for sort of 20 something years through yep. every team that I've led. And the basis is you ask someone, you know, can you achieve X? Can you make that customer happy? Can this project be successful? Can you get this product out the door in X time frame? And the answer is either yes or for most people, it's no because of all of these reasons. And um, no because is not acceptable within sugar. Yes if is acceptable. And so someone will come to you and where they can't say yes, they're immediately thinking of the solution rather than thinking of the roadblock. And so they'll come and say, well, yes, I could if you could give me more budget or yes, I could if you could give me these two resources or yes, I could if you remove the roadblock. So that yes, if mentality in my mind is just is incredibly empowering for any company. So lots of other things I, I believe CEOs should take feedback really, really seriously. You know, they don't have to agree with it. I'm a big believer in being decisive as a, as a CEO, in order, particularly in order to grow. If you're not decisive, and I've worked for some CEOs who were couldn't make a decision to save themselves and it was debilitating as a business. So make a decision. And if you find out you've got the decision wrong, then be transparent and humble and admit that you've made a mistake and pivot quickly. That to me is is incredibly important. Driving competitive differentiation that customers care about. I think a lot of businesses drive competitive differentiation and it's stuff that the customers are like, you know, ho-hum, I don't really care. It doesn't mean anything to me. So being able to you know, drive that, that obviously drives, drives growth, you know, focusing in on how do we help our customers generate customers for life? If we can win that battle, then we've generated customers for life. That's the hard part of the battle. So finding ways we can do that, not micromanaging the team. I've, you know, once again, I've worked for a lot of CEOs who micromanage their people. And, and if you micromanage people, they'll never be their best. They'll never blossom and uh, and achieve their their true potential. Getting the right people and then leave them to do what they're good at is uh, is really really important. And for me, always being on the lookout for the weeds of bureaucracy starting to creep into the business. They'll get in there somehow or another and finding a way to get the weed killer and stamp them out. Um, bureaucracy is just such a killer for businesses, and it's why I like businesses you know around the size of of sugar. Once they get to many billions of dollars, it just becomes political footballs being played and, and bureaucracy just creeping in and everything move grindingly slowly. I, I mean, that's just not where I like to be. I like to move at pace and, and to be responsive. So they're all the things that for me, I take super seriously as a CEO, but, but I think also lead to a, a real growth culture. I think that's uh, fantastic. And I agree with it. In fact, the first time we met, you told me about the yes, if. Did I? Yes, you did. And I brought it back here. So we have the same phrase 
used all the time. Yes, if. So um, if anybody on this podcast is taking any away from everything you've just said, that is a core. Yes, if. And that way you're thinking about how to solve the problem. Yeah, every person that walks into your office already has at least one solution in mind because they've been forced to say yes, if. And the yes, if answer might be completely untenable. And so therefore the answer is still we're not going to do it. But at least having them think of the solution or think of multiple solutions, it's just empowering. Yeah, yeah. A lot of that resonates with like, uh, Jim, one of the way that you phrased it when you talk about this with a lot of new hires, especially when I joined, was like the whole concept of getting the people in the right seats and also treating your part of the, like your job as like your own business, like you're an entrepreneur. So having- Yeah, those are part yeah. of our core values, uh, Brian um, and and Craig, uh, Ellie and Brian can tell you about that, but we do onboarding, things like that. And our core value structure is everybody's an entrepreneur. I'll take the financial risk as the entrepreneur, but I want you to treat your role as if it's your business. Treat it literally as if it's your business, which requires no micromanaging, right? If you have to be micromanaged, then you're not in business. You'll be out of business. So, and then the other part of that is, um, and we follow... EOS or entrepreneurial operating system. So right bodies, right seats. Oftentimes people hire, I think, and they set the person up for failure because they put a wrong body in the right seat. And there might be a right seat for them somewhere else, but they were set up for uh, for failure. So um, I want to ask you, and this is really uh, selfish for me because you have a lot of experience with acquisitions. And although we've done a series of acquisitions that are smaller, I am really right now faced with a fairly large one. So this is very interesting to me. What makes a company a good target for you? And what should companies be looking for to get acquired by thinking about that or whatever it is you would suggest? Yeah, look, you know, I've probably been involved in, I don't know, 40 acquisitions over my career, you know, both buying companies and also being bought, so, you know, on both sides of things. So different buyers look for different characteristics. And in an IP-related business, I think there are some standout items and getting purchased by PE versus a strategic versus PE-backed strategics. I mean, they all look for different things. But I can tell you, if we're looking at a business, number one is customer retention rates. So, you know, if we look at a business and on face value, it has some attractive technology, et cetera, and, and then we look deeper and find that they're retaining 70 or 80% of their customers, we're, we're out of that door as quickly as you can imagine, right? Gross margin is important and, and operating leverage. So can I continue growing that gross margin but linearly, effectively, which delivers you know, a lot more profitability as I scale up revenue. So that's a really important thing. Percentage of recurring revenue, particularly in a, a SaaS-type business, if you've got 90% recurring revenue, it's a far more attractive value proposition than 10% recurring revenue. So as a business like yours, Jim, finding a way to turn your revenues into recurring revenues is super important. Yeah, lots of other elements, like average lifespan of the contract. If your customers are all on a month-to-month and can cancel at any time, you know, that's less attractive than if you've got an average of three years in terms of, um, you know, contract life cycle. So all of those things, obviously, growth percentage, EBITDA percentage, ideally, we use the rule of 40. So your growth percentage plus your EBITDA percentage should be north of 40. And businesses that are north of 40 are incredibly valuable, far more valuable than those that are less than 40. So that's if you're looking to sell a business and you're in control of that, they're the attributes that we typically look for. 
as the most important. Lots of other due diligence, but they're the most important. Yeah, for the audience, uh, the rule of 40 I find uh, very interesting because just for the audience who doesn't understand that, let's say, for example, you're growing at 10% in revenue per year, your uh, net profit or EBITDA needs to grow at 30 to hit the 40. Is that, is that right? It needs to be a 30% EBITDA. So if you're $100 million revenue, you should be making 30 million dollars in terms of EBITDA. And equally, if you're growing at 50% per annum, you're losing money, right? Because growth is such an important facet or factor in terms of uh, valuation of a business. And, and for us, when we're looking to buy a business, you know, all of the above's important. But one of the most important things for us is technology fit. And how will this impact our customers in terms of the effort, the overhead, the admin, the maintenance that's required to bring this other piece of IP into the mix. And, you know, there are vendors that are out there that they'll just buy anything, regardless of what it's going to look like. And they end up with this, what I call a Frankensteinian mess of an application. And they push the burden totally onto the customers in terms of the cost and the overhead and the usability and, and all of these sorts of things creates a massive impost on the customers. But they're happy because they can tick another box on an RFP in terms of, yeah, you've got the capability. For me, you ultimately have to care about the ultimate customer experience. It has to be, in my opinion, one of the most important boxes to tick rather than it just being a, a science experiment. Because if your onus is on the customer to make it all try and work together, that's not a good outcome for the customer. So, and obviously in terms of other attributes, you've got to look whether or not you can absorb the business and whether culturally, whether... You're going to have customer and employee attrition or, or whether it will actually fit in and dovetail into everything else you're doing. So lots of different elements, but they're some of the key ones. That's excellent. Thank you very much. Let's move to one other question before we head off to our techtainment section, where we surprise the guests with questions they have no idea they're going to be asked. It's a very concern, too. It's a big concern, <laughs> and it should be. You should be fearing, fearing and feeling horrible at this point. But I assure you, those who get through it are much better off for that period of time. I have no idea what I just said, but... We will move on. The channel, the channel sales uh, model. It's been around a long time. You know, what are your thoughts on channel sales in the modern business? Is it a dying uh, part of business? Is it underutilized? Is it good for growth strategy? What are your thoughts? Well, of course it's dying, Jim. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm, a I'm a channel guy. I've always been a channel. So for those of you who don't know my, my background, more than half of my life was spent in Jim's role before I came across to what some in the channel would call the dark side, coming across to the vendor. So I'm very much a channel guy. And I know as a vendor, one of our biggest challenges to scaling revenue is people. And scaling a direct business is, can be very, very expensive. For many SaaS companies like Sugar, particularly those who are selling into a horizontal market, embracing the channel is a really important cornerstone of go-to-market strategy. And you know, being a growth-focused company, we know that we can't do it all. I mean, we could, but it'll just take a hell of a lot longer. So, you know, we extend our reach via our partner community and, and you know, continually extending our skills and expertise via these, these partners. They do a wonderful job of, you know, typically they do a wonderful job of implementing and, and they do a wonderful job of maintaining that and, and that customer relationship for the longer term. It, you know, it tends to be really, really personal. And then on top of that, you get a lot of channel partners with a level of vertical expertise that we don't have. So if we're a horizontal player, we play well in a whole range of different verticals. 
that some partners bring expertise that we just don't have and can go and dominate in particular sectors. So there'll always be customers that want to deal only with the vendor and there'll be customers that want to deal only with the, a partner. You know, I think there's certainly positives to both of the, the models. I think with a partner, you have more flexibility typically than a vendor in terms of dealing with with a customer. So it's horses for courses. But as you would know, Jim, partners make up more than 50% of our revenue, considerably more than 50% of our revenue. So uh, we got some wonderful partners and we're very appreciative. Yeah, that's great. Then there's a part of growth for you then. That's great. Well, I do, I do remember when you did move over to the dark side, your voice changed and people started calling you Mr. Vader. Was that, Is that right? First name, Darth. I don't know. Luke. Uh, I am your father. I'm your father. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh, my uh, it's gosh. Just my, <laughs> we're going to take the mic, mic away from you. Um, oh, now we're now we're an ASMR channel. This is great. Yeah. All right, you know what we need to do? We need to go to our techtainment time because I know we're running out of time. And uh, I'm going to start with my question, if you guys don't mind. I know, I've, but then we can, you know, whatever. Um, How dare you? All right, so um, Craig, my question to you is: If you could go back in time, what one thing would you tell your teenage self? Time's up, Craig. You've not won the prize today. <laughs> so, you know what? Well, well, there's a number of things. But my wife asked this the other day, and I said, Mary, and I said her name. Her name's Mary. Uh, her name's not Mary. Oh. Uh, for me, from a professional um, perspective, and this is obviously about businesses and growth, get involved with private equity a lot earlier than what I did. So, you know, I've worked for a partnership, a private company. Whoa, whoa. whoa. You took, as a teenager, you would have told yourself that? Yes, yes. Oh, okay. It's been like, you know, I got involved with private equity 10 years ago now, and it's been absolutely transformative. I love the business model. You do so much more because you haven't got external people that are breathing down your neck all the time and, and you know, flip-flopping on strategy, which I see with a lot of public companies. Uh-huh. Okay. So for me, we're in charge of our own destiny. Customers for life is absolutely critical, and we can do things that back up that ethos that I might, you know we wouldn't potentially be able to do in a public company. I did so, not expect that answer. So, are you saying I should get involved with private equity now? Well, Jim, you've got a very successful business, so yes. you don't have to worry about it. Maybe sell to private equity at some point. Perhaps, when you want to- perhaps, yes. <laughs> all right, who's going next in my team? Uh, oh, oh, all right, Ali, you go. Sorry, right, Brian. <laughs> Craig. Would you rather explore space or the ocean? I'm a bit scared of heights. Um, so probably the ocean. I, I I tried to get over my fear of heights. I've had 14 solo parachute jumps and three bungee jumps. Oh, and every wow. time it got worse, but I was determined not to lose. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, now as, as I get older, I'm, I'm getting even worse. So the whole space thing, albeit as a kid I wanted to be an astronaut, probably I'd have to say the ocean. Particularly with the Australian reef and uh, the Great Barrier Reef, right? Yes. Uh, being from Australia. Great, Great Barrier Reef is gorgeous, and I'm a certified diver. So, uh, you know, that was my question. Right? I get to go there, uh, you know, I love it. Have you gone diving in the U.S. at all while, you, you know, while you're here in the U.S.? I'm in Colorado. We don't tend to have a lot of oceans. Oh, that's I'm true. a lot of ocean there. Yeah, right. Yeah, not yet, but, you know, maybe with global warming, that uh, it's been a long time. If you did find water, there would be there'd be a problem. Yeah, yeah. Can, yeah. I can, I can, be the coast. We can take you out <laughs> off of the East Coast here. It's a little bit cold, but you'll like it. Yeah, I could wear a dry suit, I'm sure. Yeah. Brian, you're up. Great. So, Craig, have you ever been told that you look like somebody famous? And if so, who was it? 
Well, there was a, a famous footballer in Australia that none of you guys would know. He was a very unattractive guy, so I was very <laughs> upset when I got told I was. When I was running Asia back uh, many years ago, I used to go with my colleagues and for some reason, and I don't know if it was the name, but, but there was a whole, this whole Dan, Daniel Craig thing. And, I, I mean, he's obviously uh, very good. I see so, it. I see it. Uh, yeah. So somewhere between, you know, this very good-looking chap and, and the guy who was, who I'm not going to name, but uh, who was very unfortunate-looking. So, Yeah, so I, would, I had a follow-up question in case you didn't have anybody ever do that to you, but I'm assuming that Daniel Craig would be the person you would want to have play yourself if they ever did a big Hollywood blockbuster movie on your life? Yeah, well, not that that ever is, <laughs> gonna ha- is ever going to happen, but he's a, a very good-looking rooster. So, yeah, thank yeah, you. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, he's, he's coming to the end of his Bond series. So, Craig, you could pick it Sugar. up. Sugar CRM docuseries you know, on Netflix? Easy. Uh, very, I, you know, my, my background as a chartered accountant probably doesn't make me interesting enough to make a movie about. <laughs> yeah, well, that may be the chance. You know, it's funny. Uh, Don't sell yourself short. Right. <laughs> <laughs> whatever he said whatever he said dream, um, dream we uh i was just uh having uh before we close i was having a uh, dinner with my wife and somebody said you know you look a little bit like marlon brando when he got fat and heavy. you know who you look like and it's a spitting image of, if anyone's watched the show um the future show about the uh house what the what's it called, the house no maiden's tales or no what's oh you know i've been told that before by Oh yeah. Yeah, what's his face? Yeah. Yeah, what's his name his face? Handmaiden's Tale, it's called, right? Handmaiden's Tale. That's the it, series. Yeah, yeah, I, that's funny. The you general, said. the general, I've literally got a photo of him and I showed someone our team and they said, Is that Jim? Oh is that right? You, you are the doppelganger oh for this guy. We'll, we'll have to get that picture and put it up on the growth enablement madness picture stuff for you. The, for this episode. For this episode, Brian, make a note. Oh, yeah. I'll make sure that that's in the show. I'll send you a picture of him, Jim. But he is yeah, exactly, exactly the same beard, yeah. mustache, hairline, totally everything. Face. Bradley Whitford. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. We'll have to show me, Ellie. I had to do a quick Google. Yeah, that's who it is. Bradley Whitford. I don't know. Do you see it, Ellie? I, I 100% agree. We just have to get to some agree? big glasses. <laughs> oh, do they have a note, I have something here attached? somewhere. But, uh, <laughs> well, hey. Um, I usually wear these when I talk to the team at the end of the quarter. Uh, things were a little bit shy. I don't know. Jimmy from Boston. Anyways, uh, hey, Craig, you've been a lot of fun. You're always a lot of fun to talk to. I really appreciate you joining us today. Craig Charlton of uh, Sugar CRM CEO. How does somebody get a hold of you if they want to reach out to you? Email ccharlton at sugarcrm.com. Um, and my mobile will be back on on my signature when I return. So awesome. when I return that email. So well, if you yeah. want to get a hold of him, I know how to get a hold of him. So just contact me. Yeah. Remember, <laughs> remember everybody. Jim knows people. Remember everybody. Yes, if. I love that. So thank you, Craig, for sharing that with us. Hey, Allie, thanks for being here as always. You're, uh, you're, always make sure you try to laugh at my jokes. That's one of the requirements of the podcast. Oh, it is. I heard yeah. that was on the job description <laughs> when people sign on to work with you. Fun. It's our number one core value, fun and funny. And uh, Brian, thank you very much. I appreciate you um, letting me have a better tan than you. You're welcome. Thanks very much. Yeah. So, uh, (laughs) hey, folks out there, we appreciate you listening to the podcast. We look forward to our next podcast. Again, thanks to Craig Trouton, the CEO of Sugar CRM. Find us wherever podcasts are found, Snapface, uh, Bridge Chat. I don't know. But anyways, thanks again.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Growth Enablement Madness Podcast. I also want to thank Divinio Podcast for this episode's production and distribution. Finally, thank you to Sam Ward for our musical introduction and outro. Be sure to check out all of our episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. New episodes are available monthly and cover all important topics for growing and scaling your business. Until next time, this is Jim Ward signing off. Let's grow. Let's grow.